0: Welcome to At Home and Abroad with Harrison Walker. Join us each week as we follow our curiosity, diving deep into the familiar and the foreign. Reach beyond your front door as we uncover new perspectives, explore intriguing ideas, and have real conversations with the best guests. Ready for something different? Let's get started.
1: In 1994, 39-year-old Italian native and Olympic pentathlete, Mauro Prosperi was a participant in the six-day, 156-mile endurance race, the Marathon of the Sands, which takes place in the extreme heat of South Saharan Morocco. With three days behind him, Prosperi headed into the fourth day of the race, but in the early afternoon, with the temperature at 115 degrees Fahrenheit, the unexpected happened. The winds whipped up, and quickly the sandstorm forced organizers to temporarily halt the race. It was not soon enough for Prosperi. He had become disoriented and ultimately lost. The storm had altered the appearance of the landscape, making it impossible for him to find his way. In a moment of hope, he saw a search helicopter fly overhead, but it failed to see him despite his flare and his waving of the Italian flag. Prosperi was fortunate to find shelter from the relentless sun in an abandoned tomb, and with the will to survive, he ate what he could find. Raw bats, reptiles, insects, and bird eggs, and even his own urine kept him alive. He was severely dehydrated, resorting to sucking moisture from wet wipes and licking the dew off rocks. Another plane passed, and Prosperi lit a fire, writing SOS in the sand, but again it flew away, taking Prosperi's hopes of a rescue with it. Desperate and alone, Prosperi wanted to end his misery and attempted to end his life. He cut his wrists with his pocket knife, but the extreme heat and the dryness of the air clotted the wound. Prosperi would not die that day or that way. Resigned to his fate, he struck out towards the distant mountains, unknowingly heading deeper into the desert, but luck finally did come his way. He discovered an oasis. In an interview with the BBC, Prosperi described the moment. Really, it was only a large puddle, a mirror of water in a wadi. I threw myself upon it and gulped with abandon, but I could hardly swallow. I managed to force a mouthful of it down, and almost immediately I vomited. I couldn't hold anything. I found I had to take tiny sips, one every ten minutes. His luck continued shortly after he followed goat droppings to civilization. During his nine days' disappearance, he had traveled 180 miles, finally arriving in Algeria. In the end, he had lost almost 35 pounds and was told that his liver was on the brink of failure. He was unable to eat solids for months and was not fully healed for nearly two years. Not only did Prosperi live to tell his harrowing story, he has re-entered the race
0: many times since. Wow. Yeah. S- stories of extreme survival against all odds have always fascinated I know. me. I think my fascination with survival began when I read that if you survived a plane crash, you could strap the cushions from your airplane seats to your feet in order to allow you to walk in the snow. Wow. Those would be pretty big and cumbersome <laughs> <know>, shoes, right? <laughs> I
1: think. I'm going to have to look into that one. I think I'm pretty safe in assuming that you aren't alone in your fascination with the topic <laughs> of survival, though, Walker. In fact, I know it because I'm a huge fan of that show, Alone as so many others are.
0: So have you seen the show? I have, but I'll admit that I'm not the biggest fan of reality shows and I haven't watched more than once or twice. I might give it another go though. Yeah,
1: I think you should give it a chance. Participants are dropped in remote environments with just a few items of their own choice and they have to survive there alone. Whoever outlasts their competitors wins. It's tough, but it's educational too. And it really drives home how far we've gotten from understanding how difficult it is to procure Cure your own food
0: well survival's a pretty strong theme for television and film isn't it
1: right like the 1993 movie alive you know the one about the uruguayan rugby team and their struggle to survive after their plane crashed in the andes i do it was a pretty compelling story it sure was the surviving men were starving and they were faced with the decision to either harvest or eat their deceased team members or likely die themselves It was shocking, I think, for audiences to contemplate what they themselves would do in that situation. Ethics,
0: morals versus survival, right? Every year, there are a few real-life experiences of those who survive against all odds. They grab our attention and ultimately remind us of how strong our will to survive really is. Yeah, it's heartening to see people
1: overcome adversity, no matter what it is. It gives us hope that we can do the same. Right? No matter
0: what life throws at us. And life can be a bit random and terrifying. It can. Take, for example, survivors of tornadoes, lightning, and even being the victim of a shark or crocodile. Yeah, no thanks. Now, you'd be happy to know that people can survive all those things. When I was young, I remember being mesmerized by a picture in the National Geographic of the burnt shoes of a lightning strike victim. It frightened me. Yeah. Now I love storms, I have to say, but I'm still terrified of fork lightning. When I see it streak across the sky, I get really small and hunched over so I don't stand out in the landscape and I avoid (laughs) trees at (laughs) all costs too. Aww, Walker. I know. I don't think there's much danger of you being the tallest thing around though at 5'1". Okay, so true. But people get (laughs) struck by lightning more than you might think. Okay. Texas experiences the most lightning strikes but Florida is the hot spot in terms of density of lightning strikes. Apparently 49 people died in Florida alone from lightning between 2011 and 2020. Hmm. Now, the good news is that 90% of people who are struck are injured, but they typically survive. Now, if you think that an average bolt of lightning contains 300 million volts, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it is. And
1: even though we say lightning doesn't strike twice, some people have been struck multiple times and survived. That's wild. I know. Roy C Sullivan claimed to have been struck by lightning a whopping 7 times. This garnered him a place in the Guinness Book of World Records, and Roy, who was a park ranger, is also lovingly known as the Spark Ranger. <laughs> Isn't that adorable? Of course he is. That's so <laughs> cute. But what is not so cute is that Roy suffered scars, hair loss, and hearing loss, in addition to having one of his big toenails blown off as a result of one of these strikes. Yuck. Lightning strike victims also often suffer cardiac arrest, burns, and temporary tree-like patterns on the skin called Lichtenberg figures, which show the path of electricity. It's incredible. Isn't that crazy? Many people suffer other lasting disabilities too, like memory loss. Right, very traumatic for the body. Yeah, but happily, there is a support group for
0: people who have survived lightning strikes and also electrical shocks. I've heard of it. The group was actually founded in 1989 by Steve Marshburn, a lightning strike survivor himself, called Lightning Strike and Electric Shock Survivors International. It's an important source of support for those who've undergone such a harrowing experience. Mm, So
1: how do we avoid lightning strikes? Aside from
0: your hunching over and running away. Well, I've looked into this. Okay, (laughs) In an article written for Backpacker, which I have to say is an incredible source of information, Kathy Cooper, who is a former park ranger and public affairs specialist for the National Park Service, offers some very practical tips. Okay, share it, Walker. Okay, the first one is obvious. If you see lightning or hear thunder and you're in an open area, Leave, Paris, leave. Okay, Harris, leave. all right. <laughs> Try to find shelter in a car or a building and look for lower ground. Also, make sure you stay away from electricity conductors like water and metal. Good advice. If you're camping, get out of your tent. Then find shelter in what Miss Cooper refers to as a stand of shorter trees at low elevation. This is also good to know because... I thought all trees were a no-no. hmm me too. And if you're in a group, move apart, far apart, about 50 feet away from each other. So if lightning does strike, fewer people will be hurt. Okay. Of course, if someone's struck, get help immediately and administer CPR and first aid as necessary. Always
1: something to keep in mind, especially if we are enjoying the great outdoors, like camping or hiking, something like that. Mm-hmm. I think we get a little complacent sometimes and perhaps forget how unpredictable mother nature can be. And things can go squirrely so quickly. We need to be prepared for the unexpected. We are excited to introduce Dave McDonald, Royal Canadian Air Force Veteran and founder of the International Canadian School of Survival. ICSOS's courses are designed with Dave's extensive experience and training over almost 20 years rescuing victims in remote wilderness survival situations. He has worked on several well-known and regarded television productions and one of our favorites on the History Channel alone. Welcome to At Home and Abroad, Dave.
2: Thanks for having me. Much appreciated.
1: I'm so excited. I'm in fact watching, I'm not sure what season of Alone, but I am currently watching it on Netflix. And I have to say, I probably would survive about hmm, 27 minutes. (laughs) I need your help. I need your help. So you were a search and rescue technician, or otherwise known as SAR tech, with the Royal Canadian Air Force for 19 years. And aside from the obvious extensive training and experience you received during that time, Why did you go ahead and then decide to found the International Canadian School of Survival after retiring from active service?
2: So several reasons. You know, uh, after being in the military for 25 years, you're kind of used to being told what to do and you have a mission. Everyone's kind of on the same missions. Um, So when I got out, I had to find my own mission. Otherwise, I would have been lost for years, you know, trying to figure out what to do with myself. The other thing is I've seen how much these students, Air Force students, and they were forced to do the survival training, how much they actually enjoyed it when they got into it. Right. And my fellow staff as well just love teaching it. And then I also seen that um, it's an endless learning curve. And I really like that part about it. Survival is an endless learning curve. You're always trying to better yourself or figure out how nature works so that you can better position yourself. In a survival situation,
1: yeah, because nature throws curveballs all the time. You, it's totally unpredictable, right? Any situation could throw you something new.
2: Yeah, it sure does. It throws you curveballs, but I mean, in a way, there's always patterns too. So, right. you know, seasonal patterns, migrational patterns, all that. So that's why I teach a pattern for survival.
1: Right, exactly, and that pattern that you teach can be used in any environment like the Arctic or desert jungle, grasslands, forest, and it doesn't matter whether you're traveling on foot or over land or in a vehicle of some kind. So what's that common strategy to the pattern?
2: So it's just like um, in school, you have fire drills, right? And you do these patterns or these drills to give you the best chance of escaping the danger. Right. So the survival pattern goes first aid, fire, shelter, signals, water, food. And basically it just keeps you on track and it, you bring up whatever priority. Like fire could be priority or water could be priority depending on the environment and the emergency at hand.
1: Okay, say that again. First aid, fire, shelter.
2: Signals, water, food. First, fire, shelter, signals, water, food, and you can use that in any environment, like I said, even an urban environment for a man-made or natural disaster, you can use that survival pattern to get yourself and your family through emergency situations.
1: So really practical skills probably that, I mean, I certainly would be interested in acquiring and that everybody, even on a very basic level, maybe should have, because you never know, right? Your car goes off the road. You just can't predict. Sometimes you find yourselves in in very precarious situations. Do you have a lot of people who come out and sign up just sort of not military or people who are very, very keen survivalists who come out and take your courses?
2: Yeah, I have a lot of corporations and northern communities, government agencies that can come and take the courses. And then I also run open public courses twice a year. Oh, 15 days straight in the fall and 16 days straight in end of February, in the spring. Wow,
1: that's, that's fairly intensive.
2: Yeah, the saturation training, I find it really helps with the learning curve and really reinforces those points the, to take home with you.
1: Yeah, you're fully, fully immersed and there's no escape. You got to move through it. You got to find your way through it. I follow you on TikTok, and I was recently uh, watching one of your videos, and I found it so practical, because coming from northern Manitoba myself, I grew up with bears, and uh, one thing I had never known, though, was that when you're walking in the bush, I knew you had to make noise, but specifically with off-leash dogs, which is always a concern with bears, right? They don't mix well. For sure. For sure. Well, maybe you could tell us what you what you really should do in that situation because I found it simple but very informative.
2: Well, situational awareness is key. You need to be aware of your surroundings all the time, you know, no earbuds or look around every once in a while. But the dogs are really my uh, alert system and my defensive system, and then I have the bear spray uh, to protect the dogs in case, you know, a pack of wolves or something comes in and tries to take my dogs. Mm -hmm. And I'm always yelling out. I always yell out in pairs. You know, the first one, maybe the bear's down, it's got its heads down, it's feeding. It hears me, it pops its head up, but then it doesn't hear anything. So then I always give that second shout, just idea on direction so that it can evade and move away from us.
1: Yeah. I found that so valuable.
2: It works with all the animals. It keeps the, you know, even the squirrels and stuff, they hear me yell, they go up in the tree. That way my dogs aren't running after them and getting into trouble. Keeps everybody safe. It does, it does for right, sure. Right.
0: So Dave, all of your courses sound really interesting and practical as well, but one really stands out. <laughs> so the Ultimate Survival Challenge. What does the course involve?
2: So that's uh, can be 15 days or 16 days. That's the open courses I run. Uh, some people ask for private lessons as well, which is no problem. Um, so it includes most of our training, the wilderness, safety, and survival. Level one is about 80% classroom, 20% outdoors. Oh, okay. Uh, covers like the search and rescue system, communications, equipment, okay. the survival patterns for stage fire, shelter, signals, water, food. Um, And then it also clo- includes psychology of survival, which is very important. And then the level two is all outdoors, and we go through the survival pattern, right? Right From start to finish, first aid, fire, shelter, signals, water, food. You do it in pairs. The next day, you get up or you sleep overnight. That's the level three in pairs in a survival shelter with a big linear fire in front of you. And then uh, we go through training again the next day, the survival pattern, but different practical things to do. And then uh, we get into wilderness first aid four days long and that's a really good course we do in overnight with patient care as well really um we do land navigation two days long map compass and gps you walk away with the functional knowledge if you don't get lost most of the time you don't end up in a survival situation uh we do wildlife awareness and predator safety as well you get to shoot bear bangers bear spray rubber bullets And some different firearms 22, 30 30, 12 gauge, and 303, just to give you some awareness of firearms and firearm safety. We also do cold water immersion, where you go in three times. Of course, I do demos and everything. You're tied in, got a helmet on, it's all safety. And then you go in three times with just the clothes you would normally wear when you're out in the winter. You have to fall through the ice. And you do uh, self recovery. And then you get assisted recovery as well.
0: It sounds really involved.
2: It is. It's a great course. Uh, Most of our students lose half a pound to a pound of body weight per day.
0: Sign me up. There we go, Harris. I was gonna say (laughs) we're gonna sign up right after. We're coming, Dave. Our holiday uh, festivities.
2: (laughs) it's good to get ready for the beach for the trip down south, right?
0: Perfect. (laughs) Perfect. Well, can you explain for us why people should know that the courses offered through ICSOS are more than simply outdoor recreation and tourism?
2: I group us more in the health and safety industry. I'm not teaching you tricks or primitive living skills or bushcraft. All that is involved with the training. But I'm not specifically teaching you how to be comfortable in the bush. Right. I'm teaching you how to survive in an emergency situation. Now, I do a worst-case scenario in the woods with minimum equipment. Okay. But all everything I teach can be used in urban environments, mountain. Uh, if you're stuck in a life raft on the ocean. You use the survival pattern and the techniques.
0: The fact that it's so transferable is is really the secret sauce there. Dave, can you just
1: expand a bit on, you mentioned the psychology of survival. What do you mean, what's involved in the psychology of survival?
2: Uh, Like learning what the good survival prospect is. Okay. Someone who hopes for the best, yet prepares for the worst. Someone right. who realizes that, you know, a lot of people will say, well, that'll never happen to me. but. It does happen. I've seen it in search and rescue. It does happen. Yeah. How to overcome pain, cold, fatigue, all the other things, right? Stick to the survival pattern, work your way through it, and the survival pattern will protect you. It will get you through. It will get you through. It gets you thinking ahead. And I revisit the survival pattern You know, probably five or six times a day. If the weather changes, I revisit the survival pattern to figure out what the hazards are. And then I adjust.
0: Now, I would imagine first responders and military professionals often take courses with you. But now we, we've talked a little bit about the average person and how they could benefit by taking training with you. What is the best way that they could start? Some people may think that they're not tough enough for this. <laughs> like, you Can everybody get something out of it?
2: Yes, definitely. Everybody can do it. Typically, if they're 12 to 16, I want a legal guardian with them. But I figure if they're old enough to drive a vehicle with passengers in it, then they're old enough to be responsible in the woods. So I'll take them 16 and up. Anybody can do it. It's, it's just, it's a lot of work, but uh, anyone can do it. You just follow the survival pattern and follow what I teach, and you'll have absolutely no problem. Matter of fact, it would even be enjoyable at minus 10, minus 15.
0: So are you still running your online courses? I had seen some of them on your website, and I'm thinking Christmas gifts.
2: Yes, for online courses. I have the Wilderness, Safety, and Survival Levels 1 through 3 online right now. Okay. I think Level 1 is about five and a half hours long to complete, uh, 11 chapters, test questions at the end of each chapter, just so you get a grip on it. Um, and then we also have the gift certificates for both in-person And the online courses.
0: I know we think about this for ourselves, but what a wonderful gift, right? To give somebody the gift of safety and security.
2: Yeah. I mean, I try and promote the personal safety triangle, which goes first aid training Mm -hmm. because things happen, survival training, and then you don't have to do the first aid on yourself if you can do survival and keep yourself above board, and then land navigation training, Because if you don't get lost, then hopefully you don't end up in a survival situation. If you do, it's probably because of a first aid issue and you've got the first aid. And then within that triangle, you need knowledge, skills, and equipment. Now, I don't sell equipment, but the equipment that I promote is exceptional, multiple users under harsh conditions, and the equipment stands up.
1: If I were to have one piece of survival equipment, what would you recommend? Bit lighter? A Bic lighter. Okay.
2: Yeah, yeah. Or some type of disposable lighter just so you can get a fire going. That's the yeah. big thing with a lot of people nowadays is they don't have any way to get a fire going.
1: Yeah. Oh, I watched them on alone trying to do it with sticks, Dave, and that's not for me. I don't have the attention span.
2: I don't really teach that. It's, that's, you know, to get a fire by friction in a remote area that you've never been in before, you're probably talking a couple of days of experimenting with different woods, and you're probably talking about twelve thousand calorie expenditure just trying to get a fire going Wow six thousand calories a day trying to get a fire going
0: and, and I imagine you'd need to find dry wood would you not
2: yes and and it's not just any dry wood it's particular dry woods in certain areas geographical areas works
0: yeah, that sounds a little tricky i, I I'd go with the back lighter yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dave, I want to thank you so much for chatting with us today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Now, if you'd like to learn more about Dave McDonald and the International Canadian School of Survival, you can find their website at www.survivalbytraining.com or on Instagram at at survivalbytraining. Thanks so much, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Now, I could have talked to Dave all day. I know, me too. (laughs) Though I have a keen interest in survival techniques, I have never taken the time to take a course. Mm. I don't spend a lot of time in the situations that require these kinds of skills, but you just never know when the unexpected will happen, right? Yeah. Things can be flipped upside down in a heartbeat, but people don't think that it could
1: happen to them. Right. So most of us are unprepared for any kind of catastrophe.
0: Right. The Optimism Bias, Mm. an optimism bias, also known as unrealistic optimism, describes when we think bad things might happen to other people, but never ourselves. Right. Okay. According to Kendra Cherry in her article, Understanding the Optimism Bias, aka the illusion of invulnerability, the idea was explained by N.D. Weinstein. They noted that in a study of over 200 college students, the students tended to estimate their own chances of experiencing negative events, such as getting divorced, as being lower than for their classmates. They also estimated that they had a greater chance of experiencing positive events, like living to old age. Well, who wants to assume that they'll
1: experience negative life events, right? (laughs) I think you would be a happier person having an optimism bias.
0: True, and it can contribute to greater motivation as well. But the really interesting thing is that optimism bias can also actually lead to negative behavior like risk-taking.
1: Oh, wow. So a double-edged sword.
0: Apparently so. Wow.
1: So maybe that's why we enjoy harrowing tales of survival against all odds. It's a little voyeuristic. But we can also play out these scenarios in our minds. Like, what would I do in that situation? Would I be as resourceful? Would I survive? Oh, I could
0: see that. Easy to do from the safety of our own homes, though. Right. Do you remember that film... 127 Hours. No. It was about the American mountaineer, Aaron Ralston, who was pinned under a boulder while hiking alone in Canyonlands National Park, Utah, in 2003. Can you imagine?
1: No, and I do remember this story. I think I would be done for. He was trapped
0: for five days, wasn't he? He was. He hadn't told anyone where he was going, unfortunately, which made matters worse. He managed to survive with what little water and food he had with him, but he did lose 40 pounds during the ordeal. And spoiler alert, he had to amputate his own arm, then make the seven mile hike back to find help. Oh my God. How on earth did he not bleed to death? That is a crazy, crazy experience. It is. And it's no wonder that he's a motivational speaker today Mm. and still a mountaineer. Still a mountaineer. I think I would think twice about heading out hiking after that experience. Not him. When you love something, you don't let it go. It reminds me of the surfers who are attacked by sharks and then they're back on their boards as soon as they can. I know. I can barely get on a board myself (laughs) with fear of sharks, but I guess when you got to cut That wave, you gotta catch that wave. Well, it's not always outdoor pursuits that take people by surprise, though. Sometimes it's just in the course of daily living, like taking an airplane. Yeah, I can't even watch that show, Mayday.
1: I haven't seen it. Oh, don't. I know. Oh, my God. See,
0: that's another issue I have.
1: Yeah. (laughs)
0: I'm afraid of flying, too. I do it. Yeah. But I'm not a comfy passenger. No,
1: because you have no control. Airplane crashes, I think, figure a lot into our nightmares.
0: Have you heard of Julianne Kopka? I don't think so. Well, she's a famous mammologist today, but on Christmas Eve 1971, at the age of 17, she was the only survivor of over 90 passengers on Lensa Flight 508. The plane was struck by lightning throwing it out of the sky into the depths of the Peruvian rainforest. Wow. Copka was sucked out of the plane, ultimately falling approximately two miles while strapped to her airplane seat. In an interview with the BBC, she said, "'Suddenly the noise stopped, and I was outside the plane. I was in a free fall strapped to my seat bench and hanging head over heels.' The whispering of the wind was the only noise I could hear. I felt completely alone. I could see the canopy of the jungle spinning towards me. Then I lost consciousness and remember nothing of the impact. Later, I learned that the plane had broken into pieces about two miles above the ground. I woke the next day and looked up into the canopy. The first thought I had was, I survived an air crash. Wow. The fall resulted in injuries, including a broken collarbone, but she survived. But this was just the first part of a remarkable story. She had lived with her parents in the jungle a few years earlier, so she was familiar with the terrain. She walked in the creeks and the rivers, but the only food she had to eat was candy that she had found at the crash site. Ten days after the plane crash, Julianne finally came across a small camp. By this time, her body had been ravaged by insect bites. She had a wound that was infested with maggots, but she was saved. Wow, that's an incredible story. I know. Tragically, her mother was one of a few who survived the crash, but she died before help arrived. Mm. Julian's story was retold in the book "When I Fell from the Sky: How the Jungle Gave Me Back My Life." Wow, that sounds like a good read. Well, you can actually read it because I bought you a little something.
1: You did? <laughs> oh, you Surprise! Did? Oh, thanks, You're Walker. So oh, you even brought it. I even
0: brought it for you, you brought it to the. Oh, are you? You are such a cutie. (laughs) So, do you think it would be worse trying to survive alone in the jungle, the Arctic? Or on the water. Hmm. I think that being stranded at sea would be one of my own personal nightmares. Yeah. I have a shark phobia. Oh my gosh, all my phobias are coming to light. <laughs>
1: Thanks to Steven Spielberg. Oh, I think I share that with you. A whole generation of people are totally messed up because of JAWS. For sure. Right? When it comes to surviving at sea, I think people really underestimate how tough it yeah. would be just for the drinking water oh. alone. At right? minimum. I'm sorry to feed your nightmares, Walker, especially after your very <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. sweet gift, but I do have to tell you about a fisherman named Jose Salvador Alvarenga from El Salvador who spent 438 days stranded at sea.
0: Over a year? Yeah. This reminds me a little of the film Castaway.
1: I know. That's exactly what I thought. Except in the movie Castaway, Tom Hanks spent a good chunk of time on a deserted island and not on the waves.
0: Right. That's where he met Wilson, his volleyball friend. His little volleyball friend. (laughs) And side note here for
1: our listeners, in 2021, Wilson, the volleyball prop used in the film Castaway, sold for $308,000 US at a Sotheby's auction.
0: Oh, excellent tidbit of trivia for my next cocktail party. There you go. I hope it comes in handy. So back
1: to Jose. His 13-month journey began on November 17th, 2012, when he headed out from the coast of southern Mexico with a fellow fisherman. They were expecting a regular day of fishing, but suddenly a storm hit. And this was not just any old storm. It was a storm that lasted five days. When the skies finally cleared, they realized that not only were they lost, but their boat was damaged, and even worse, they were left without a way to call for help. Search and rescue assumed that they just didn't survive, and
0: so they were stranded. So how did they sustain themselves? Being fishermen, I would think, fish? Yeah, you got that right. They drank rainwater and
1: turtle blood in order to replenish fluids and ate fish, turtles, and jellyfish for sustenance. Tragically, though, Jose's fellow fishermen did not make it.
0: So how did Jose ultimately get rescued? Well, one day, he did notice a small island
1: close enough to him to swim to, and that's where he finally found help.
0: Gosh, can you imagine how he felt to see that island that day? Yeah. Wow. I wonder how he kept his hope and motivation alive for so long. Well, apparently, he thought about sex and delicious food. (laughs) 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 Then, <laughs> <laughs> Yep.
1: <laughs> Apparently though, he doesn't fish anymore. He's afraid of the water. And according to a 2016 CNN article, he said, there are still nights when I can't sleep. The ocean keeps haunting us. Poor guy. There's no wonder. I know. Sometimes survival depends on a single split second decision, like Jose's decision to swim to that island that day. These days, more and more people are preparing themselves in the event that they are ever faced with such a scenario, like doomsday preppers.
0: I wonder if the uncertainty of the pandemic initiated some of this. I can't think it would have helped. Preparation mitigates uncertainty, right? And of course, television shows such as The Walking Dead and The Last of Us have all got us in an apocalyptic state of mind. Yeah, there are some who want to be ready for
1: the potential collapse of society, if that time comes. Even in 2012, a National Geographic poll discovered that 28% of Americans knew a doomsday prepper. There was even a show on the National Geographic channel, which ran from 2011 to 2014, called Doomsday Preppers, which, of course, I have watched in its entirety (laughs) and loved. There were preppers who were making plans then for a global pandemic. Weird, huh?
0: Yeah, I bet the number is a lot higher now.
1: Oh, yeah, I bet. But prepping is not limited to individuals, it's a global effort, too. The Svalbard Global Seed Vault, also sometimes referred to as the Doomsday Vault, is prep for a bioagricultural disaster. It's located on the Norwegian island of Spitsbergen in the Arctic Svalbard archipelago and stores 930,000 plus varieties of seeds, and it's a backup storage facility for 1,700 smaller vaults
0: around the world. Neat. Did you know that you can actually take a virtual tour of the vault online? I did not know that, and I am very excited (laughs) to do that. I also found
1: another cool online resource for all things prepping. The secretsofsurvival.com says that there are two main stages of preparation for a disaster. The first is storage of resources, which we see a lot on the show Doomsday Preppers. This includes procuring food, water, medical supplies, and survival equipment. Sounds like a
0: little like the panic pantry. It is (laughs) exactly, but they have like massive massive panic pantries for like six years. Village, probably. Oh, it's
1: crazy, man! Then there's the second stage, which includes making sure you have proper survival knowledge. So Dave would be our go-to guy for this. Do you know how to hunt and fish, clean your water, defend yourself from wild animals, and be ready for a first aid emergency walker?
0: No, I'm woefully unprepared for the wild, I can say. Um, I can spot a good sale, though, at the grocery store. Does that count? It sure does. (laughs) It could come in
1: handy when stocking supplies, right? (laughs) But you would need a bunker to wait out the apocalypse. According to loveproperty.com, there are many available bunker options for a variety of budgets.
0: Probably not for my budget, though, Harris. Well, maybe not. They start
1: at $19,000 US, and you would need somewhere to put it.
0: Okay, out of my budget, but not as much as I would have expected, actually. Well, don't get me wrong. Options
1: did go as high as $299,000 US, and I really would imagine that the sky's the limit. In fact, a lot of celebrities have prepared for the end of days, like Roseanne Barr, Kim Kardashian, and maybe to no one's surprise, Joe Rogan. But it's a real business. David Cobbler and Scott Hunt, owners of the Practical Preppers, provide prepping resources and support. Cobbler and Hunt began their business out of a passion for helping families achieve independence and security in an unstable world. Hmm. But not everybody thinks that prepping lifestyle is worth all the effort and expense. The late Professor Kenneth Rose of the University of California, Chico, and author of One Nation Underground, The Fallout Shelter in American Culture was once quoted by USA Today as stating, Frankly, I think people should put their energy into making a more peaceful world rather than contemplating saving their
0: own skins. A point worth thinking about. So, Harris, how well do you think you would fare if you were stranded somewhere in the wild or floating somewhere out and about in the ocean?
1: Mm, Probably not very well, Walker, but maybe better on land than
0: water. Well, we're about to find out. What? Do you mean by that? Are you sending me on a survival course? Now that would be entertaining. No. (laughs) I only have a few questions for you from the Would You Survive quiz from Backpacker. Okay. All right. Let's see how I do. Are you nervous? Mm. Your survival may depend on whether you answer these questions correctly. Okay. No pressure. None at all. Okay. Here we go. Okay. Halfway into a week-long hike in Glacier National Park, you and your buddy have lost the trail. FYI, your buddy is not me. What's your next move? Is it A, shortcut cross country back towards the path to avoid wasting daylight? B, retrace your steps to your last known landmark? C, stop, pitch your tent and start signaling for help? Or D, Climb to the top of the highest nearby peak to get a better view. Hmm. I think I would pick C. I think I would stop, pitch my tent,
1: and start signaling and maybe make a cup of tea.
0: Wrong. Oh, (laughs) It's B. You have company, (laughs) Harris. Supplies and gear. So solve this yourself. Okay. If you're still off the trail after a day or two, try C. Following option A is a major reason hikers get lost. Yeah, keeping moving and you have no idea where you're going, probably not a good idea. Okay, true or false? Hypothermia can be a risk in temperatures above 55 degrees Fahrenheit. True. If you're wet, you can still
1: get hypothermic.
0: You're right. Hey. True. Especially if it's raining and windy. Rangers in this smoky see a surprising number of cases every spring. Wow. A cotton mouth just sank its fangs into your girlfriend's ankle. Again, not me. Okay. Good to know. (laughs) After calming her, you should immediately A, tie a tourniquet just below her knee to keep the poison from reaching her heart. B, Make a deep X cut at the site of the bite and start sucking. Yuck. (laughs) C. Have her do jumping jacks to work the venom out of her system. Poor girl. Yeah. D. Keep her lying down and calm and send for help. Or E. Attach a suction cup venom extractor and pump away. Uh, I'm not sure how often you would have a suction cup venom extractor <laughs> you in your purse. You have one of those handy attached to your belt right now?
1: <laughs> nope. <laughs> I think I would pick D. And I actually know this answer because my hubby and my daughter are on ski patrol. Oh. And although there are very, very few snakes spotted on ski slopes, this was part of
0: their training. Okay. Weird but True. Good to know. According to Backpacker, they say keeping the victim immobile slows the diffusion of venom into the system and minimizes the risk of shock until you can arrange evacuation for anti-venom treatment. Snake bites are rarely fatal, but some people suffer serious limb dysfunction afterwards. Yeah. Here we go. Question four. You suddenly realize you're lost in a deep forest. What's the way out of this fix? Hmm. Is it A, follow the closest creek downstream until it meets a river, because rivers always lead to civilization? B, find shelter, stay warm and dry, and wait for rescue? C, note your location surrounding landmarks carefully, then retrace your steps to the last point where you knew you were en route? Or D, call 911 for directions on your cell phone? Duh. (laughs) If my cell phone
1: was working, I'd call 911. I think I would go for B if it wasn't. It's much easier to find a stationary target for search and rescue than a moving one. So find shelter, stay warm and dry, and wait.
0: Wrong. Oh, man. <laughs> I know. Apparently Backpacker says it's C, which is note your location and surrounding landmarks carefully. If that doesn't work, go with B, which is find shelter, and A is a myth, apparently, huh. to backpackers.
1: Well, yeah. In Canada, not all rivers lead to <laughs> civilization. Okay, people?
0: Okay. So what's the most dangerous animal in the wilderness? Is it A, a grizzly bear? Mm-hmm. B, rattlesnake? Mm-hmm. C, the one in your mirror? Ooh. <laughs> a little dangerous. saucy there. yeah. D, a wasp? E, wild hog and heat, or F, another human?
1: Definitely humans. So both C and F, although I do not consider myself to be very threatening.
0: Well, wrong again here. Oh. Apparently, backpacker says it's C. There isn't even a close second. Well, humans. I'm human. <laughs> Other humans. Come on. I think I was I don't know why they're one. specifically targeting us in the mirror. I know. <laughs> okay. So the most common reason for a backcountry rescue is... Do you think it's A, bear mauling, B, an avalanche, C, sprained or broken knee or ankle, D, knife or axe wound, E, a rock fall, or F, altitude sickness? I would say C because it would be a total disaster
1: to lose the ability to walk if you are miles away from civilization in the backcountry.
0: Well, wow, you are right. Woo-hoo. According to Backpacker, it is, see, by a long shot. I'd say based on this limited quiz, you might do okay, Harris. Thanks, Walker. <laughs> but I wouldn't be putting yourself any risky situations anytime soon. No. And no, you are not signing up to be a contestant on the show alone either. Uh, uh, not a chance, Walker. <laughs> I was worried I could hear the wheels turning there.
1: Ah, those squeaky wheels, they're always giving me away. Thank you for joining us at At Home and Abroad with your host Harrison Walker. If you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate it if you would rate and review our show. It helps us grow and expand our reach. Subscribe to follow us each week as we continue the conversation. You can also say hi to us on Instagram at, at @harrisonwalker. We would love to hear from you.